Hello, I'm Carrick MacDonald and this is Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns Local History Show on Cam Glen Radio. The 31st of January 2019 saw the 100th anniversary of what became known as the Battle of George Square. In this programme, I talked to Bill Bonner about this dramatic event in the history of Glasgow and indeed of Great Britain. Bill lives in Tory Glen and has been a socialist activist for over 40 years. He has a degree in politics and history from the University of Stirling and is a senior member of the Scottish Socialist Party. I began by asking Bill to describe the background, domestically and internationally, which led up to the Battle of George Square. Well, I suppose the, 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 the most important background of this was the First World War. The war had just literally ended maybe a year before that. Um, and what you had was a lot of troops, vast numbers of troops being demobbed and coming home, basically. Um, but the home they were coming to was hardly a home fit for heroes. It was a, If the situation had been bad before the war, immediately after the war, and for most of the 1920s, the economic, socio-economic situation was dire for most people. There was mass unemployment, mass poverty, appalling housing conditions. Um, they, had, they had gradually got worse during the war. But what contributed to an economic decline was that the industries that existed in the west of Scotland, like the shipbuilding industry, engineering, were largely there to supply the war effort. So almost overnight... These industries were shut down, so you had all these soldiers being demobbed, many of them very disillusioned by their whole experience of war, uh, being promised a land fit for heroes and coming back to really dire situations for their, themselves and their families. At the same time, the, you, you had internationally, as a direct result of the war, a breakdown in the old established order. You had the Russian Revolution, uh, which was part of a revolutionary wave that swept right across Europe, uh, left no country untouched. Um, the revolution in, in, in Russia ended up surviving and succeed, succeeded. There was a revolution in Hungary, which put in a Bolshevik government. It was overthrown. But there was revolutionary movements right across Europe, and it was affecting people's thinking here, because the Russian revolution in the popular mind a lot of workers was actually quite a good thing. And of course, in the government's mind, um, they became obsessed with all this. So there was that situation was feeding into this uh, sense of desperation and anger that a lot of people, particularly the demob soldiers and their families, felt. And I think that fed into the 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 the, the, the rising level of militancy. Um, it also meant that. It didn't take much to trigger mass action. Often it starts as one issue, but then very quickly escalates into lots of issues get poured into it. So, for example, um, just a few years before it, you had massive rent strikes in Glasgow uh, against rent increases. There were still issues with rent and high rents, etc., homelessness, all get fed into the same kind of movement. So although a movement starts as having one specific demand, Actually, what you tend to find is lots of demands are thrown in and get mixed up with it. Bill then explained that it wasn't simply one event that triggered off what happened that day. It was a culmination of contributing factors. Well, it's, it's sometimes it's important not to isolate a particular event. That was one particular event, but there was a build-up to it. There had been a strike movement. 
particularly around the demand for a 40-hour week. We've got to remember, at that time, the average working week for a skilled worker was 56 hours. In fact, the number of hours worked were actually higher at the end of the Second World War, the First World War, than they were at the beginning <laughs> of the First World War. Mm. It's basically because people were desperate for work and would put up for any kind of conditions. So the initial demand was to reduce that to 40 hours a week, and that developed a, a, a strike movement in the Glasgow area, in, in particular industries like the shipbuilding industry and heavy engineering. Um, Initially, the official trade union movement uh, gave lip service to that, um, but never took it very far. But what you had then emerging was a much more rank-and-file shop stewards movement uh, called the Clyde Workers' Action Committee, which ended up being the head of a movement of over 100,000 workers, basically factory, mostly engineering and shipbuilding, but these these collectives, these groups began to spread for factory after factory uh, in part a response I think to the moderation of the trade union leadership at that time um, who were as fearful of industrial action as the employers were and simply wanted deals done and would very quickly acquiesce to any employer's demand so there was a growing um, sense of frustration. Also as I, as I said there was mass unemployment but of course, the, the the strikes took place with people who were employed. And again, it was a lot of them were demob soldiers, very disillusioned, uh, very angry uh, about the situation. So the demand initially came to reduce the working week from fifty six hours. The demand was for a forty hour week. Mm. The settlement eventually came in between that. But of course, as I said already, other demands then moved into this. And what also happened is what started as a very specific demand around the 40 hours a week began, that was centred around the shipbuilding industry and some engineering plants, then began to spread almost like a wave from factory to factory to factory as some of the other demands came in as well. Mm. Um, and what you saw emerging was this uh, kind of rank and file trade union movement, almost in opposition to the official trade union body, um, led by mostly very young, uh, quite inexperienced shop stewards, leaders, basically, who had kind of emerged at the very tail end of the war. Some of them were, were, had been in the Second World War. So that that was the... the, the, the Can't be the First World War. The First World yeah. War. That was a build-up to the thing. And as I said, what started off as a specific demand very quickly mushroomed into lots and lots of demands, although that, was, that became the main focus. Yeah. So the events on the day then, what led up to the actual the conflict that, that ensued? Well, there had been a, a mass demonstration planned, um, and it was to march in Georgie Square, um, simply because that was the main rallying place, and it was for demand for a 40-hour a week. Um, the, uh, initially, they came, it was a very big demonstration, maybe 50,000, 60,000 people, um, marched on the square, there were speeches, there were rallies. Um, the kind of city leaders were quite terrified of this um, and very quickly capitulated said, no, look, um, we, we'll go and talk to the government, we'll talk to the Employers' Federation, we'll talk to the government, come back on Friday we are, and we'll give you an answer. But you know, it was a, a case of kind of deflecting it a wee bit, basically. Um, and also just sheer panic by the sheer volume of people had taken, that, that had turned up. So come the Friday, um, 
the demonstration, it's difficult to work out how many people there, but most of the estimates are somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people marching towards Georgie Square. By this time, though, and we know this from um, government records, this has now concentrated the mind of the British government. Um, we know from cabinet papers that's been released since then of this was the number one item on the agenda, what is happening in Glasgow. Um, and their view was they were looking at the Russian Revolution, they were, they were looking at what was happening elsewhere. Is this just another example of that? So they decided to take a very firm line. They sent um, English troops north. That was interesting. Uh, why not use Scottish troops who were based in Glasgow? But the Scottish troops based in Glasgow were largely waiting, troops waiting to get demobbed, um, were very experienced, had come through the war with lots of bitter memories of that war. And the view was these troops simply could not be relied on. Mm. Would they follow war? Or would they, for example, shoot in demonstrators? Or would they side with demonstrators? And if they side with demonstrators, you are in a completely different situation. Mm. So it's interestingly, the troops at Maryhill Barracks, for example, were confined to barracks. Um, and the troops that, that brought forward were mostly English troops who were younger troops. Um, many of them had only been kind of recruited at the very, very tail end of the war. Very few of them had actually seen any action in the continent. Um, but my boy may be looking for some action. Um, but they were brought up to, because they were deemed as, as more reliable. You, you couldn't rely on the local troops. Um, the police force was effectively militarised as well. A lot of them were giving guns. The tanks were staged at um, strategic points around the square. Machine guns were staged at, in the top of, of the city chambers and elsewhere. Basically, the government was preparing for an armed insurrection. And also, uh, the government wanted to draw a line under this and just say, we will take any action necessary to stop this. Because from the government's point of view, this has ceased to be a demand for... Um, a 40-hour week, this was now in their mind, they were now watching an insurrection. And of course the other thing to bear in mind is, other events were happening in Britain, a very similar movement was happening in Belfast. Uh, there was movements happening in UK, often around the shipbuilding industry and engineering, um, and the government was, was reeling from this. So um, the demonstrators marched in Georgia Square, they marched towards Georgia Square, word got back to them about what they were facing there. And the leadership then decided, or the, 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 there was obviously intense discussion going on amongst the official trade union leadership who wanted basically the thing called off. And these younger, more militant shop stewards about what to do next. And the fear was maybe this could just lead to a bloodbath. So instead what they did was moved it away to a big rally in Georgie Square, in, in Glasgow Green. Some of the leaders like Wally Gallagher, in retrospect, regard that as a mistake. Mm -hmm. They should have marched on the square, basically, and tried to take control of the square. Mm. But you're, you're talking about a fast-moving situation um, and people having to make decisions on the ground. I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you're listening to Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. In this programme, I'm talking to Bill Bonner about the Battle of George Square. In the build-up to that, though, there was lots and lots of... We shouldn't see this as one single demonstration. These demonstrations were going on, on every day. Strikes were taking place, demonstrations were taking place. And so what you had then had in Glasgow for the whole run up to that whole week 
was a series of confrontations and battles, running battles with police and some troops as well, as the strike spread. So, for example, the, the city council tried to keep the trams moving. The strikers tried to stop the trams moving, so you had battles with the police uh, over that. Lots of people were injured, lots and lots of people were arrested. Um, and basically the city was in chaos for that week, leading up to the, the eventual demonstration. You mentioned Willie Gallagher's name there. Who were the other principals involved around that time? Most of them were a group of... Uh, there was a thing called the Clyde Workers Action Committee, which became the kind of coordinating body. It emerged almost spontaneously. So I don't think it was ever pre-planned. And the, the thinking, uh, and also about Manish, David Kirkwood, Manny Shinwell, people like that, uh, interestingly, the, the one person who would have been the key leader of that, John McLean, was mm. in jail at the time, or else I think he would he would have been almost the de facto leader of this. Yeah. But he, he was in, in prison from suffering a, a long jail sentence for campaign against the war. The thing about these leaders is um, they were actually all quite young. I mean, Willie Gallagher, um, who ended up being the chairperson of it, was 23. You know, these were young, yeah. young shops you're kind of thrust in and learning on, on the spot, basically. And all of them went on to have, you know, Willie Gallagher, you know, would, would a short time later join the Communist Party, eventually become a Communist MP mm. in Scotland. Uh, David Kirkwood, Manny Shinwell would develop careers in the Labour Party. Um, some of them moving to quite distance himself, like Lord Sh- Manny Shinwell, who became Lord Shinwell, kind of distance himself with these events. But again, you're, you're, you're talking about largely kind of young workers, basically. And how did the day play out then? How did it end? What was the outcome? Well, the the decision to... It ended messily in terms of n- neither side really won. The, con- the, the, the major confrontation at Georgie Square um, became a bit of a stalemate where the demonstrators went away they, they, they didn't succeed in occupying the square, they didn't see anything like that. But the government itself wasn't strong enough to really... I think the government would have liked to just smash the whole thing. In fact, there's some evidence um, from memoirs, uh, including people at Churchill, where the government actually wanted a confrontation. They wanted a showdown in George's Square to, to give them the excuse mm. to impose emergency measures throughout Britain, basically. Pretext, um, and again, that was one of the reasons why the leadership of the, the strike movement kind of backed off a wee bit, because uh, there was a feeling of we walking into a trap here. Um, the, eventually, there was a kind of negotiated settlement, and the government then passed through legislation um, that allowed, enabling the legislation to allow uh, f- the coming in of a shorter working week. What they eventually signed up for was a 46-hour week, which I suppose at some levels it was a big victory given the average working week was 56 hours, not the 40-hour week. Uh, but, of course, that wasn't the end of it. You know, you know these movements, don't, it didn't come from nowhere and it didn't dis- disappear. So if you look at throughout the 1920s afterwards, there's a whole series of strikes and movement. Of course, you know, Five, six years later, you've got the general strike, which had its strongest base in Glasgow. And in many ways, the people involved in that were largely the people involved um, in the pre... You know, so one thing led to another. Um, it, it led to some reforms in terms of... It did lead to tighter rent controls. It led to 
the Labour Party, for example, effectively taking control of the city in the back of this. It led to the emergence of the Communist Party, uh, and a lot of these young workers would then become part of the Communist Party <laughs> in 1920 when it was formed. But of course, what then happened if you move the clock forward, once you get into the 30s and the Depression and mass unemployment, a lot of these gains were swept away, basically, mm. as people were just so desperate for work, they would, they would settle for anything. Bill talked earlier about Willie Gallagher's subsequent regret that the marches didn't go to Joe Square as planned. Gallagher considered that what happened in 1919 was almost a successful revolution, stating that, had there been an experienced revolutionary leadership, instead of a march to Glasgow Green, there would have been a march to the city's Maryhill Barracks. There, we could easily have persuaded the soldiers to come out, and Glasgow would have been in our hands. Did Bill agree with Gallagher's assessment? Um, I don't know so much about a successful revolution, mm. you know, because although there was other events happening elsewhere in Scotland, nothing on this scale, nothing on this scale. Um, and it's, you, you couldn't really have a, a revolution that occurs in one place, basically. <laughs> yes. It leaves everywhere else un, un, sure. untouched. Uh, where are you going to go? But he, he certainly took the view later on that um, they could have made far more gains if they had they had taken the struggle to its next level, where he would have seen its logical conclusion, which was a general strike, um, appealing for troops to support, you know, support the strikers, taking control of this, basically taking control of the city. Right. Um, they could have moved this on. He, he, his view was they compromised far too much, and also that they listened to the kind of trade union establishment right from the beginning, wanted this settled, okay. and wanted to to take the dispute out of the hands this Clyde Workers Action Committee and get it back into the official the, the official trade union movement. And of course behind the scenes was the Labour Party establishment and Was this the ILP? Well the ILP were heavily involved in this right. as well, but the, right. the Labour Party in Scotland, right. uh, the official Labour Party, they were th- their view now was this whole central strategy in Britain was we now want to become the official party of opposition leading to become the party of government. Um, but to do that, one of the things, they, their belief was they had to prove their moderate credentials to the British establishment along the lines of, look, it's OK, you can, it's safe to allow us in. We won't, you know, let's put it with you, Ramsay MacDonald. The only way a Labour government will get elected if it's seen as a safe alternative right. to the dominant Tories. Yeah. So the last thing they wanted was to be associated with all this type of thing. So they had a real vested interest in bringing this all to an end and keeping a lid on it. And they were the acceptable face almost then. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And Gallica's criticism is, uh, um, and it's a self-criticism, it's a, or a criticism of the situation, they listened far too much to that kind of advice, that mm. kind of pressure, you know, you, you know, there's, there's times to negotiate, there's times to know it, and um, by people who really just wanted the thing finished and under any set of circumstances mm-hmm. wanted it ended. As you know, Bill, all around Joe's Square there are statues of various establishment figures, most of them Edwardian and Victorian um, pillars of society. There are no, as I understand it, monuments to the event itself on the day there. Mm-hmm. The Battle of George Square, or the individuals concerned—is that the case? There's nothing. There's nothing. No. Nothing whatsoever. Right. I mean, the issue of statues, I think, is—I think it's a big issue all over the world now. It's, it's a big, big debate. You get the debate down at Cambridge, but should there be a, a statue to Cecil Rhodes? Right. 
you know, um, in in Brussels there's um, there's statues to King Leopold, who was a vicious, mad murdering colonialist. Mm. Um, if you want an example of a evil empire in Africa, it was the Belgium Empire. Yeah. Um, but there's statues to, to King Leopold, mm. and so there's a big debate about who are the statues for. And you're right, most of the statues in Glasgow are to are statues mostly to wealthy individuals who are largely used the petty cash of that wealth to build monuments to themselves. Mm. And some of them, you know, you have to question the real what contribution they actually made. Only recently, I suppose, to counter that with the statue of Mary Barber, who was involved, incidentally, in these, these disputes as well, heavily involved in the, the events in 1919. But it was one of the leaders of the rent and But it's only now... We've got a statue to her who became the first woman Lord Provost, and to my knowledge, the only statue of a woman mm. in Glasgow. Mm. So there's a debate to be had. The, the most interesting statue is the one with Duke of Wellington, mm. with the, the cone in its head, yeah, and yeah. people keep saying, oh, it's got a cone in its head. Mm. But the real question, why is there a statue to the Duke of Wellington? Duke of Wellington never set foot in Glasgow in his life. Mm. He has no connection to Glasgow. So why... In eighteen, why in the eighteen twenties did the city council build a statue to him? Mm-hmm. And it's because in eighteen twenty, to go back exactly a hundred years before it, you had a similar event happening. You had a mass uh, movement led by um, the weavers, who were one of the very early trade unions at that time, mm-hmm. that took control of the city, basically, even to the point of seizing armories and things like mm-hmm. that. The city, the city fathers, or the city establishment were so panicked, they appealed to the Home Secretary, Wellington, to send English troops north, and eventually crushed, used English troops to crush the revolt, and in fact the three leaders of it were, were taken to London, tried with treason, and hung drawn in quarters. You know, they very, I think they're the last people to suffer that fate. And it always strikes me, and and, and, and thanks to city, city Fathers, if you want to call them that, mm had a statue made to Wellington. My, my view would be to melt that statue down and use the material to build a statue of the three Weavers leaders. Um, there's no statue to John Maclean, for example. Um, there's no statue to James Connolly in Edinburgh, uh, one of the leaders of the Irish Rebellion. So I think there's a debate to be had about you know, what statues are, why are they there? Should some statues be removed? In January this year was the centenary of the Battle of John Square. Did that event pass off unmarked, as far as we know? Um, I think it's largely unmarked. The, the right. TUC have done some things round about it. Um, the some of the other kind of leftist political organisations have done some stuff around it. They've held seminars and talks about it. Some of the universities, history departments, have done some quite good stuff. They've got speakers and seminars, which is quite good. The interesting thing, though, is if you look at some of the Glasgow media, um, the BBC, for example, gave no coverage to it at all. But then maybe they reflected on the, on the BBC radio coverage of it at the time, mm. which was viciously anti-worker. Or um, if you read the Glasgow Herald, mm. for example, the Herald mm. covered the events, etc., but the Herald was, again, a cheerleader. The Herald was ferocious in its opposition to the, the movement. Mm-hmm. In fact, were ferocious in, in opposition to the government. Mm-hmm. We thought he had chickened out, in fact, should have clapped down on them and actually, mm-hmm. you know, shot workers, basically. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a bit of embarrassment maybe. going on with, with some of the media here. Maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you've been listening to Halfway to Butter, 
the Two Towns Local History Show on Cam Glen Radio. Many thanks to Bill Bonner, who was talking to me about the Battle of George Square. Thanks also to Zen Boyd of Rutherglen Heritage Centre for her help and support. The music was by Sugar Nifty. I hope you enjoyed this programme and that you can join me again next time. Until then, thanks for listening. How do you look after your teeth and gums? Brush your teeth um, every every time you wake up and at bedtime. Make sure you get like everywhere around your mouth, even the back of your teeth. If you kind of don't, then you'll have them fall out. If you don't look after your teeth, you'll get black and brown. To help keep your teeth and gums healthy, visit the dentist regularly. To register with a dentist, simply telephone or visit a practice in your area and ask if you can register with them. You can find a dentist near you using the NHS Inform Service Directory. You're listening to Press Pause on Cam Glen Radio. This is a programme that focuses on nature sounds to promote relaxation and mindfulness. For the next half an hour, you'll hear the sounds of Loch Fenneker in the Trossachs. <laughs> 